Psalm 17, verses 14 through 15, with a uh, special focus on verses, or rather, verse, verse 15. From men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. And as we will consider this morning and afternoon, but as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. May God have a blessing to the reading of his word and now to the preaching of the word. <clears throat> Pastor Antonio has preached two sermons on happiness and what happiness details. Today, we are going to expand on his thoughts and the thoughts of the word of God as we consider the ultimate happiness of man, which is found in, upon death, seeing God face to face. Again, the ultimate, ultimate happiness of man for the Christian is, upon death, seeing God face to face. The aim of your life, what you are made for, why you exist now, the reason why you can look at death and say that there is no sting, the reason why on your deathbed, if God grants you such grace to be able to have your mind fully there to look at the end, it is this great promise that you will see God face to face. That is the great promise and hope for the Christian in this life. This is what makes everything all the external goods, all the worldly goods that Pastor Antonio spoke of those past two sermons, this is what makes all those things imperfect happinesses. Because it is God himself whom we have as a perfect happiness. These two sermons, saints of God, and especially the last two sermons are so important for us to know. This is much different congregation, this sermon and this afternoon's sermon, than two people who are on the debate desk talking about the future of America. One red, one blue. You have two people talking about the future of America and what will, may happen. But we don't know. And we are so interested. Millions of people watch these debates. But saints of God, today... We're not watching something that may happen. Or rather, you're not hearing something that may happen. You're not hearing of something that is maybe so, maybe not so, if just the right bill is passed. But for sure, the Christian will find and will be truly and ultimately and finally happy when they see God face to face. Last week's sermon... And the week before that congregation was most definitely about the next life that's to come, but also most especially how in this life do we prepare ourselves for the next life and seeing earthly goods in the manner in which they ought to be seen. Now, this week, now today and this afternoon, we're going to consider our happiness that's ultimately found in God in the manner in which it ought to be seen. 
saints of God, there's much that's going to be said this today that I don't want you to get lost in. I don't want you to worry about trying to write down every single note, but rather I want this sermon to be something of a, of a, of a virtue of hope for you. A virtue of faith and love for you as you are hearing of your, of the great happiness that you will have in heaven. Uh, allow the virtue of hope and faith and love to cultivate and rise within you. I don't want this just to mere, be just merely a, a lesson in, in systematic theology and getting things right. Although we want to get things right, we want to, we want our hearts to be stirred so that the hope that lies within us will be inflamed. What is this great hope? Many have spoke of it. Pseudo-Dionysius says, in, the most, in a most holy contemplation, we shall ever be filled with a sight of God shining gloriously around us as once it shone for disciples at the divine transfiguration. And there shall be our minds away from passion, from earth, and we shall have a conceptual gift of light from him. And somehow, in a way we cannot know, we shall be united with him. In our understanding carried away, blessedly happy, we shall be struck by his blazing light. As we come to verse 14 and 15 of Psalm 17, we have before us a contrast of two parties. In many ways, it's Pastor Antonio's sermon in a nutshell. Pastor's sermon in a nutshell. We have two parties, and we have specifically how these two parties find ultimate happiness. Not happiness itself, but ultimate final everlasting happiness. There are certain things in this life that satisfy us. If we were to just think long enough, we could, we could list off the various things in our life that give to us pleasure and happiness and joy and delight. But as we learn from Pastor Antonio's recent sermons, as great as all of these earthly things are, that bring us joy, they are just that, earthly things. As great as these temporal things are, they are just that, temporal. Saints of God, how are we to view then the temporal things of the world? Well, David says, for my people, or rather from my people, by your hand, Lord, from the people of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. Ultimately, David is saying the world finds ultimate happiness in whatever God you give them. Whatever God you give them by the sheer abundance of your own goodness, they find happiness in that. It's children. It's their bellies being full. It's the abundance that they have. You see, David here is not complaining about the prospering of the wicked. As you might think, and as some of us might do, we see an unbeliever, and we ask the Lord, why, Lord, is that person getting that? And I'm the one going to church every single Sunday, praying, doing X, Y, and Z, and I'm not having that. See, David's not complaining at all. David merely is making an observation. He's merely just looking at the wicked in this life, and he's seeing from the vantage point of one who is saved, sanctified, and a Christian, what they have and what they are ultimately satisfied in. 
David is saying is they're satisfied in what they got. They're satisfied in all the external things that God gives to man by his sheer goodness. And David understands fully that all things come from God. He says here, whose belly you fill with your treasure. David understands quite well that whatever God wants to give to the world, it's God's prerogative to give. If God wants to give to an atheist, to a Satanist, to whoever that blasphemes the name of God, a house on the hill, a Bentley, all the food in the cabinet, God can do that. And you, driving whatever we drive and living wherever we live, God can do that. David understands that. He's not questioning that. But rather, again, he's just making a simple observation. To David, the world, the ungodly, they find ultimate happiness in the things in this life. In the things in this life. And notice the distinction I'm making, saints. As Pastor Antonio made this distinction wonderfully, happiness in children is not a bad thing. Far be it. Having money, a lot of money, is not a bad thing. Having clothes, having a lot of food, having cars are not a bad thing. But rather, what is bad is if we hope that these good things will be our ultimate good thing. As if these are the only things that are good and that's it. That's where the error lies. The goods of this world bring man true happiness. You are truly happy with the external and earthly temporal things in this life. But the problem is you're only good on a natural level. On a natural level. The goods of this life, Christian, are, are, are rather children, treasures, money, are only good for this life. And that's why David says, from people of the world whose portion is in this life. If God is not true... If God is not the living God of the Bible, then we can do whatever we want. You find happiness in your children. Rather, you find your ultimate happiness in your children. If God is not true, if the word of God is not what it says it is, the very words of God, then you find your ultimate happiness in your houses, in your cars, in your money. But here, David says, I have no reason to be envious. I have no reason to be jealous of the world and what they got and what I have. You see, although in David's life he's being oppressed, David, as he looks at what all others have, he then says something striking and most beautiful in verse 15. He says in verse 15, but as for me, as for me, as for the Christian, saints of God, this is not just David's words. This is your words. This is what you can say in the midst of a world of external goods. But as for me, oh, I love the beginning of verse 15. It's as if in verse 14, David looks at the world, sees all of what they have. And then in verse 15, he, he tilts his mind upward. He no longer is looking downward at what the world has, but rather he's looking upward. And what does he see? 
David looks to the heavens and he says, as for me, that is to say, as for my happiness, that is to say, as to what I'm satisfied in, as to what awaits for me. Oh, these three words echo St. Paul when he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is David looking forward to? How can David look at the world and their prosperity and then say, but as for me? What can make him say that? Verse 15. I shall behold your face in righteousness. And I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Saints of God, what causes David to look at external earthly goods and say, but as for me, as for my happiness, as for what awaits me, it is this grand end for the Christian. Is to see God face to face. That is, for David, the end. That is the goal. That is the prize, saints of God. That is what we are headed towards. You will see God face to face. The God whom we just sung hymns of. The God you woke up to worship. This God you will see face to face. If we just stop and take a moment, what a breathtaking thought that is. I'm not talking about seeing a mountain. I'm not talking about seeing Disneyland for the first time. I'm not talking about seeing the greatest of beaches or the most eloquent of dishes that one could place in front of you, the most beautiful person in the world. I'm talking about beauty itself. Plato once asked, what would it be like to see beauty unveiled? What would it be like to see beauty with a capital B? What would it be like to see goodness that is not derived, but essential The very definition of goodness itself. What would that be like? David here says, as for me, as for you, saint of God, this is your hope. This is what you have looking forward to. Theologians call this the beatific vision. This is the climax of the Christian. This is why God chose to set his love upon you. This is why God saved you. This, saints, is the reason for our existence and the hope of the life that's to come. It's to see God face to face. This morning we'll just consider what the vision is. In the afternoon we'll consider the great result of the vision. What is the beatific vision? Psalm 36.9 For the fountain of your life, of life is you. In your light we see light. Matthew 5.8 Blessed are the pure hearts. For they shall see God. First John 3, 2. Beloved, we are now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Oh, I love I love St. John in this verse because he says, I don't know everything that's going to happen in the future. I don't know all the complexities of my body, of everything. But I do know this. When he appears, I will be like him, and I will see him as he is. Oh, yes, the great hope for us, 
Christians is to see God face to face. The beatific vision is simply put that sight of God that will make us forever happy. That's the beatific vision. It's the sight of God that will make us forever happy. Now, we must answer though, when we say the sight of God, when we say seeing God face to face, we must understand that the beatific vision is not seeing God with the physical eye. It's not as if you will see God in the manner in which you are seeing me now, or the way in which you see objects. You see objects with your eyes. That is not what we are saying when we say we will see God. But rather, what we are saying is, or we could even say, what is the manner of this seeing then? What do we, what do we mean when we say sight or, or seeing? The vision of God is not done with the physical eye, but rather the vision of God is done through the mind. Again, the vision of God is not done with the eyes, but rather it's done with your mind. You might say that's very confusing. But let me tell you, saints of God, this is the best vision one can have. This is the best vision one can have. That is to say, upon death, our minds will be raised to know God truly. We're going to unpack that. And our wills inflamed to love him fully. Again, upon death, our minds will be raised to know God truly and for our wills to be inflamed to love him fully. Now you might say, well, if that's the case, then why do we call the beatific vision, vision? Why do we call the beatific vision, vision? Because every time in our lives when we experience vision, it is done by the eyes. So why do we call it then vision if it's not done by my eyes, but done with my mind, whatever that means? Two reasons. First, vision can be done with the mind. Many of you experienced that before. Think of a math problem. Oh, I'm so glad Leela takes math, and I'm so glad that I'm not taking math anymore. Seeing how much she labors to understand things that she will not have to apply later in the real world. <clears throat> but think of the first time you discovered 5 plus 5 is 10. Or 1 plus 1 is 2. What did you say then? You probably said something like, ah, I see it. I see now. The answer. And it became so clear to you. As long as you stared at those numbers and symbols, you said, now I see it. I see it much clearly in my mind. Think of a theological doctrine or question that you may ask. Many of you come up to me or come up to each other and you ask, brother, I just can't understand the doctrine of blah, 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 blah. Can you help me see it? Can you help me understand it? And what you're trying to do is you're trying to understand, see something clearly, not from the vantage point of a picture, but from the vantage point of the understanding of your mind. So that's one way in which we can see things through the mind. But also the word vision. And this is where we say amen. Or at least I did. Speaks to the clarity by which we will know God. Speaks to the clarity 
by which we will know God. Now, this doesn't mean that we will know God comprehensively. You will not know God as God knows God. Of course not. But it does mean that you will know God in the most perfect and maximalist way in which a creature can know God. That's what it means. And this is why when theologians speak of the knowledge of God that we have in heaven, they use words like clear, intuitive, and immediate. They use words like our vision of God, our knowledge of God will be clear, it will be intuitive, and it will be immediate. By these words alone, congregation, we can already see how our knowledge of God in heaven is far more superior than the knowledge of him that we have on this earth. Consider the clarity of our knowledge of God in heaven first. That our knowledge of God will be clear and intuitive. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as also I have been fully known. In this life congregation, sadly, the best of theologians, the best of biblical scholars, the best of preachers have only but a cloudy knowledge of God. That is to say, we don't know God in this life as much as we possibly could. St. Augustine said it best, everyone who understands believes, but not everyone who believes understands. That is to say that the supernatural truths of the faith are to be believed and we are to stand firm on them. But not everyone who believes these supernatural truths fully understands them. Can we say amen? amen. We do not fully understand the supernatural truths of the faith. And that's not because we haven't studied enough. That's not because we're not smart enough. And that's not because God's revelation is not good enough. But it's because in this life, all of our knowledge of God, as St. Paul says, is seen through a mirror darkly. Let's examine that for a second. When we look at ourselves in a mirror, we do not see ourselves or we do not see an object as it is. But rather, whatever is placed upon the mirror is but a mere likeness of the object. It's a mere likeness of the object. It's not who you are essentially. It's merely a copy of who you are. A likeness of who you are. This is how God has presented to us congregation in his life. Charles Jornet says, to make himself intelligible to us, that is to say, in order for God to make himself known and understanding to us, God makes use of our humble human words, words weighed down with earthly meanings. I'll explain this later, but as to say that our knowledge of God with respect to viewing him is not as he is. We don't see God as he is. Even God's revelation of himself in his word is not as he is. But it's mere a or merely a mirror, a likeness of who he is. Paul then adds the word darkly. Darkly. Which speaks to the level of clarity of our knowledge of God in this life. Now, don't let this discourage your congregation. It doesn't say, man, I don't know anything. You know something. You know something about God in this life. The knowledge that you have of God is of God. And it is God. 
But it is to say that in this life, all of our knowledge is, mere, is a mere likeness of him. Because God transcends even the very revelation of himself. God transcends even the very revelation of himself. So we read something in, 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 by St. John who says God is love. We know something of that, but we always end up saying at the end, but he's so much more. He's so much more than that. We see God now through a mirror darkly, but saints of God, here's the great news. Here's the great news that in heaven, we will see him face to face. Now, of course, this is not to be taken literally. God doesn't have a face. God is spirit. Therefore, the expression face to face is merely metaphorical because it speaks to the clarity of God of the vision of God, of, of the knowledge of God. <clears throat> what is better, better than seeing someone through FaceTime? What is better than seeing someone through a mirror? Face to face. Face to face. That is when you see a person as they are. When we see someone face to face, then we are seeing him or her. We are seeing that person. Do you remember the words of St. John in First John 3, 2? We are children of God, and now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as yet we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him not through a mirror, not through a likeness, but as he is. As he is. This is the great clarity in which we will see God. We will no longer see him through some created likeness. We'll get to this right now. Through some mirror, but we will see God. As he is, we will see the divine essence in all of its glory. Secondly, our knowledge of God will be intuitive. Intuitive. This is an amazing point. All of our knowledge of God, in of, of God, saints of God in heaven, will come by way of no mediation. That's what that means to say. They see something intuitively. It means that God will communicate to us his being without medium. Think of how we come to know things in this world congregation. <clears throat> All of our knowledge comes by way of mediation. In order to see, you need eyes. In order to see clearly, you need light. You need light to reflect upon, uh, reflect uh, uh, off me into your eyeballs and all these things that go into... Uh, sight. In order to know, we need words. In order to know, we need teachers. Our minds make abstractions, and there's a whole there's a whole gamut of, of, of things we can go into with regard to cognition itself and how we know something. That is to say, all of our knowledge comes by way of something else. It comes by way of a medium. There's always someone in the middle that mediates for us an object of knowing the truth. But saints of God in heaven, we will know God without a middleman. Praise the Lord for that. We will know God without a middleman. Think of, congregation, how you know God in this life. You know God by scripture, a medium. You know God by analogy, that doesn't say what God is like and not like. You know God by what he is not like, what he's not. He's not composite, doesn't change, doesn't 
exists within time. You know God by his attributes. He's love, mercy, goodness. You know God by his effects. He's creator, redeemer. You know God by his likeness to created things. He's a lion. He has wings. He has arms. He has eyes. God in this life for us has broken up the, the, his infinite being in little pieces. And he has chopped them up. And he ascribes to himself human words. He ascribes to himself human experiences. He ascribes to himself human passions in order for us to understand something of who he is. He brings down his being so that we can understand the loftiness of his being. Because in this life, we can't know God by a simple word. We can't know God by a simple word. We need created concepts. We need human words. We need human images. We need human analogies. But in heaven, but in heaven, saints, when we see God, we will know God not by analogy, by what he is like. We will not know God by what he is not like. But we will know God as he knows himself. Oh, hear me, congregation. We will know God as he knows himself. Or as one theologian said, we shall see God better than we see with our eyes of flesh persons with whom we speak. We will see God more clearly than how clearly I'm seeing you right now as I'm speaking to you. We will know God and see God intuitively. Here's the great news, congregation, that in this blessed vision, we will know God without the aid of Scripture. We will know God without the aid of his works of creation to make us understand something of who he is. We will know God without the aid of theological textbooks. We will know God without the aid of a preacher. You will never have to listen to me again. We will know God without the presence of sin. But also, for many of us sitting now in this room that's getting quite cozy, listening to me talk about lofty things, we will know God without the limitations of our body. We will talk about that in the afternoon. But that's amen. We will know God without the limitations of our body. We will know God without distractions. No phones. Not even no notebooks. No babies crying. Nothing happening for, that can distract us from knowing and contemplating him truly and fully. Amen. Amen. We will know God without human words. We will know God without human concepts, without human ideas, images, analogies, metaphors. Any sort of mediations will be cut off. For in heaven... The words of Zechariah 14.9 will finally be fulfilled. And the Lord will be the king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. We will know God truly as one, as Trinity. We will know God truly as the great I am. But you may ask, what will we know? What will we know? 
What does it mean to know God perfectly in heaven in this life congregation? What we confess to be true, and we have to just really take off our Christian hat here, what we confess in this life to be true about the supernatural truths of the faith are quite hard for us to reconcile, are they not? Very hard for us to reconcile. For example, we know God is good. But what do we do about evil? We know that all good things come from God, but what do we do about this? We know God permits evil for the greater good, but it's hard for us to see the greater good. We know that God is good and loving. What do we do about the existence of hell? People suffering for all eternity. We know that God loves us, but it's hard for us to see the reason and the value of the trials and sufferings that we go through in this life. Think of the surpassing mysteries of God, congregation. How mysterious is it that God doesn't change? How mysterious is it that God's goodness, His love, His mercy cannot be heightened or diminished? How mysterious is it that God is in control of all, yet we still have free will? How mysterious is the congregation that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Oh, the great mystery of the Trinity. One in being, three in persons. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, yet not three gods, but one God. Oh, mysterious as that is. How mysterious is the saints that from all the eternity the Father, He generated His Son by His spoken word, and, and with His Son they breathed forth the Holy Spirit. How mysterious is it when we contemplate our Christ, one in person, in two natures. In the person of Christ we have, we have perfect harmony. His humanity is not His divinity. His divinity is not His humanity. How mysterious is the perfect life and obedience of Christ unto God? How mysterious is His death, His descent into hell, His resurrection and His ascension? Saints of God, all that we confess is a great mystery. But here is the great hope. At once we are blessed with the vision of God congregation. All that is mysterious all that is difficult for us to reconcile, all that is hard for us to grasp, will all be clear. That is the great hope for the Christian. All that is mysterious, all that is hard for us to reconcile, all that makes us scratch our head and sometimes even for some believers... Reduce it down to, I just will stop believing because I don't get it. All of that will be made clear. Saints of God, hear me now. When you are blessed with this sight of God, we will see how mercy and justice are united in each and every work of God. When you are blessed with this vision of God, we will see how truly good God is in all of his actions. We will see how deep the wisdom and knowledge of God truly is. We will see how God is sovereign and yet the world is free. We will see how God's infinite goodness harmonizes with his permission of evil. 
we will see that clearly. We will understand fully why God allows us to go through various trials and suffering. You will know that. As one theologian says, we shall see how divine goodness becomes the principle of mercy. On the other hand, we shall see how that infinite goodness becomes the principle of justice. How can God pardon some and not others? We will know why. We will see the Holy Trinity. We will understand as best as we can the splendor and the majesty of the God who is one in three. We will know the Father, who is the principle of the whole deity. We will know the Son, who the Father communicates the deity unto. We will know the Spirit, who is the mutual love between the Father and the Son. We will know perfectly that paradox. We will know the incarnate Christ. We will see the Son in all of His glorious humanity. We will contemplate on the plenitude of grace and glory and the charity that was in His holy soul. We will see the infinite value of His acts as the God-man. We will understand fully and perfectly His life of obedience unto God. We will understand how great of a love He had for us on the cross. We will understand fully the resurrection and all of its glorious implications. Congregation, and so much more. And so much more. Every mystery that at times bores you, that at times lulls you to sleep, that at times might cause you to steer away from that conversation because it's just too hard and too difficult to grasp. Those mysteries will be unveiled. And as high as we can know, these creaturely, or rather these, these lofty things, as a creature, we will know them. But also, congregation, there's also great news. The mystery of ourselves will be revealed as well. The mystery of ourselves. How frequently does the Bible tell us that we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do? Who understands the heart of man? Who knows him? Even you yourself right now, it's hard for you to even grasp sometimes that God really loves me. That God would send an infinite valuable person for such a finite scum of the earth to live, die, and rise for. God really can do that for me. Does he really love me that much? Saints of God, on that blessed day, you will not know yourself in the way in which Satan sees you, in the way in which your mama sees you, in the way in which I can say the greatest of most spiritual encouragements to you. You will see yourself the way God sees you. What a blessing that is. You will see yourself, congregation. I might go on a limb here. Correct me later. Not as Isaiah saw himself. A sinner from head to foot. Maybe not how Job saw himself, repented in dust and ashes. But you will see yourself in Christ. In all of what that entails. That the Father has loved you with such a great love. That the Son has loved you with such a great love. That the Spirit has loved you with such a great love. Oh, congregation, the words of Jeremiah 31.3 will finally become clear to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. You will understand the full depth of that love. 
that every sort of meaning of everlasting will now be fully comprehended to you. And much more. I'm a preacher. So much more. I can't explain to you the loftiness. As eloquent as I can, I can't explain to you every single detail. But I do know that it will be great. I do know it will be better than what we have right now. Now, not just better in the sense of an In-N-Out burger is better than a McDonald's burger. No, 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 no. Better with a capital B. The very definition of better. Better in the sense of that which we always longed for. And before we were saved, we didn't think we could ever find. That better. The last question is simply this. When will we have this vision? When will this take place? Oh, the heir of the Roman Catholic Church. You must go to purgatory first. You must write yourself. Oh, the heir of some who say that upon death, you're not conscience. There's nothing that happens. No, 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 no. Upon death, the last the moment you take your final breath here on earth will be your first breath in heaven. The moment someone dies, when they finally close their eyes, their heart stops, they get cold. And while you're looking at that dead, cold corpse, their soul is inflamed with love. Their soul is inflamed with knowledge. This is why, saints, and if you do, that's fine. I'm not condemning you. <clears throat> Oftentimes, someone says, oh, I would love this. I wish my... This person who died in the Lord was here today to see their their grandchildren do X, Y, and Z, to see me finish school, to see me do this, do that. Saints of God, it is sort of like someone who's at the Kern County Fair. And while they're out the fair, they call their best friend who's at Disneyland. And they're at the fair, they say, hey, you ought to see this Ferris wheel at, Disneyland, at, at the fair. You ought to see the things at this Kern County Fair. And the dude on the other end is at Disneyland. He's saying to himself, what in the world could possibly be in Bakersfield, California, in a dusty area that's far better than what I see here? Saints of God, those in heaven have a much, much more happier life than they would here living on earth. Those in heaven and what they are experiencing now is far greater than them seeing their first grandchild be born. It's far greater than them seeing you get your diploma. It's far greater than anything that we can give to them that can attribute to them some sort of happiness. They see God. And they know God and they love God. And we will see him as well. Immediately upon death. Thanks of God. If God graces you to be on that deathbed, and if you're able to see the finish line, let this doctrine be the anchor by which you can say, my soul is well. Let me die now. Take me home now, Lord. 
Can you say that right now, saints? Can you say that right now, Lord? If it's all over right now, then take me now. I'm ready to go right now. Think of that glorious day, congregation. Oh, picture it. You can, I'm sure. That when the one who lives in the depths of your soul will appear to you in all of his fullness. Think of that day, congregation, when the one who's loved you since time began. Think of that day when the one who's been protecting you since birth, the one who's been providing for you all this time, the one who kept you on the straight path, the one who did not let you go astray, the one who stopped you from going to hell. When money was low, he took care of you. When that person died unexpectedly, he loved on you. When you prayed all night, he answered you. When you got sick, he healed you. When you got that unexpected letter in the mail or phone call, he was your peace. When you needed some joy in your life, he reminded you time and time again how good he's been to you. When you needed a friend, he never left you. When the burdens of life got too heavy, oh, saints of God, he made them light for you. Saints of God, He saved you. And He kept you. And He kept you for such a time that when you die, what we will see, and when we taste Him with our minds, we will say, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. What a day that will be. St. Bonaventure said, let us die. And enter into this darkness. Silencing our anxieties, our passions, and all our fantasies of our imaginations. Let us pass over with the crucified Christ from this world to the Father. So that when the Father has shown himself to us, we can say with Philip, it is enough. On that day, it will be enough. God will be enough. Now, what's the result? Of this vision. Complete and everlasting happiness. We'll consider that in the afternoon. Let's pray.